Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. So today we're going to talk about confidence. And I'm going to tell you at the start, regardless what you've achieved, what you've done, what you've accomplished, when you get out of your comfort zone to do something new that you've not yet mastered or something you don't know in depth, you're going to find your confidence will take a hit. So today's focus is how do you claim your confidence and how do you learn to accept change, sometimes the ones you don't want? How do you not take things so personally? And how do you make sure you're not obsessing about what other people think? And if we can answer those three questions in the next hour, we've done a good job. My guest today is well-suited to this. Lydia Finnett is the author of Claim Your Confidence, and she's also the host of Claim Your Confidence podcast, produced in collaboration with Newsstand Studios. So Lydia has a two-decade-long career as the leading charity auctioneer in the world. And she has changed the fun gaming, fundraising game, single-handedly raising over a billion dollars for over 800 organizations. So at night, you can find her gracing the stage with celebrities like Bruce Springsteen, Hugh Jackman, Matt Damon, Jerry Seinfeld, and on they go, while raising money for the most notable charities in the world. And as a keynote speaker, she travels the world speaking to groups about unlocking their sales potential, empowering their teams in the workplace. Named one of New York Times' most influential women by Gotham um, Magazine. She's been featured everywhere anybody would like to be featured, including the Today Show in the U.S., the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Vogue, Vanity Fair, and the list goes on. Her prior book is called The Most Powerful Woman in the World is You. But today, claim your confidence. Lydia, welcome to the show. So delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. All right. So I have to get this on the story because the story of how you came to be an auctioneer at a very young age and understand what it means to own the room. Can you just tell us that story? And then how did you get there? Absolutely. I didn't know anything about the auction world growing up. It was something that I read about in a magazine when I was in college. And I think if I look back over the course of my life, there have been many things that have happened because of this one article. And some people, when I say it, remember it as well. It was a piece in Vanity Fair about the sale of Princess Diana's dresses at a place in New York City called Christie's Auction House. I grew up in a small town in the South. I'd been to New York before, and I knew the first time that I went there that I would live there forever. I had no, not a doubt in my mind at the age of 10 that I would move to New York City. And so this piece really fit in with my dreams. And I went about telling every single person I met after that, that I was going to work for a place called Christie's Auction House in New York. And I was in college at the time and everyone would sort of look at me and say, oh, that's great. I've never heard of it. I can't help. I can't be helpful here, but it's a tactic I've used throughout my life. And my father, who has never met a stranger, also knowing this information was asking the same question to a lot of people. And at a cocktail party about six months later, he ran into a young woman who just happened to be interning at Christie's Auction House in New York City and had just received a job as an assistant. And was he was able to get out of her the internship coordinator's information. And so in a couple, I think it was probably a month or two later, I started calling 
the company to ask about a potential internship. And the woman who was in charge of it sort of laughed me off the phone because internships in these sort of, you know, high-end companies in New York City are secured months before the program actually starts. I didn't really know this. So I think I, by the time I actually got in touch with her and, and spoke with her, it was probably March or April of that year. And there was an immediate no, the internship program was full. And I kind of just kept asking the question over and over again. And this was sort of in a time when caller ID didn't exist, which really worked to my favor because she didn't realize who she was picking up the phone to speak with every morning. And after about two weeks of it, I positioned the question differently by asking her why it was capped at a certain number because the internships were unpaid at that point. And she responded that it was about the museums, that they took the interns to museums and they could only have 15 per internship for museum group. And ultimately, I said, well, I don't have to go. I could just stay and do all the work that was left over by the interns who went to the museums. Like someone's going to need help. And that was enough for her to finally just say, yes, please stop calling me the <laughs> modified internship. And so I did that internship. And then I saw the auction house in process and I became completely obsessed and never wanted to leave. And about four years into my time there, they had auctioneering tryouts. And up until that point, the charity auctioneers specifically were officers in the company. So you had to have been with the company for at least 10 years, maybe even 15. And many of them, if not all of them at that point were men. And I was this sort of young woman who was dying to be an auctioneer, but wasn't allowed to even try out because the tryouts weren't open. And about three and a half or four years in, they opened up the tryouts to the entire company. And so I left my office with my boss and my boss's boss. And we went down to the tryouts. It was four days a little bit like Survivor, you get voted off the island day after day. And I was still there after the first day. And I was still there after the second day and the third day. And on the fourth day, there were four of us there, three of whom were men, all much older than me. Two of them were British because that's the way that everyone looked and appeared to be as an auctioneer at that time. And I passed. And they said to me that day, you know, we don't really know what to do with you because you don't really look like an auctioneer. And honestly, we don't, we're not even sure what, what's going to happen here, but we're willing to let you try if you want to just go take the auctions that no one else wants to take. <laughs> and I always see opportunity in everything. You know, I'm an eternal optimist, almost to a fault, I should say. And to me, that just seemed like a pass to go out there on every stage in New York and try it out. And so I did. So that's how it started. All right. So I have to say the persistence to keep calling. I know persistence is one of your themes. I can't imagine other than just this passion for the goal that you're not giving up, that this is your future. This is how you're going to do it. And probably a little encouragement from your father, mm -hmm. kind of what kept you calling again and again and again and again? You know, it was a long time ago. And I don't think at that point I really understood I don't think I'd feared rejection at that point because it hadn't hit me in such a major way. You know, I also tell in my second book, Claim Your Confidence, that at a very early age, I played on three sports teams that never won a game in four years of playing in all of them. And so the word no and rejection and things that I have been told I can't do almost galvanized me to try harder in many ways. And I think this felt like a challenge, you know. The beauty of being Southern is you can always do it with a smile and a little bit of a wink. And people don't always seem to take it as seriously. And the no doesn't seem to be quite as painful. And I fully appreciate that after two weeks, my Southern charm had completely worn off, but I just wanted it so badly. And I felt like that I wasn't asking the question in a way to make it happen, but there had to be an answer. It was a free internship. There was no one was getting paid. There was nothing except just I needed a space to be. 
And that's essentially what I got. I ended up shredding paper pretty much the whole internship that summer, but the shredders were right by the elevator. So I met a ton of people, which ended up serving me well over time. Okay. (laughs) I can just imagining the internal workings of what was going on in Christie's at that time when shredders were, you know, somebody had to stand by the fax machine or by the shredder that was part of a spine. She wants a job, she can come do it. Okay. Okay. So... I, four high school, four te- sports teams, four years in high school, didn't school. win a game, middle school, middle and school. then kept kept playing. Okay, that's mm-hmm. a story in and of itself. I'm going to come back to that one. But for <laughs> now, I want to focus on this whole thing about being the auctioneer in the room. So now to be effective as an auctioneer, anybody who's never tried this, you do have to command the audience or else you're not getting people to pay attention to what's up, who's bid, where the bid is coming from. I mean, I've been at various events where the table chatter is going to drown out any auctioneer and anything they say. How did you learn to do that job? How did you do it? So when I first started, I took auctions the way I had been trained to be an auctioneer, which was the way that you're trained to be an art auctioneer. So if you are not familiar with the auction world, there are two very different types of auctions. Art auctioneering is what you see in movies. It's where people go to an auction house and they sit very quietly in a room and stare at the auctioneer while the auctioneer auctions off beautiful pieces of art that everybody wants. This can be jewelry, this can be cars, it goes on and on, but a luxury item. A charity auction is the complete opposite of that. You are in a crowded room of people who have already gone through a cocktail hour and are probably two or three glasses of wine into the evening, you're hoping as the auctioneer. You get on stage late in the evening where there's been a ton of programming and you're trying to sell things that people don't necessarily want, or frankly, even know that you're selling before you get on stage. And so it's really about selling and involving the audience. So when I first started taking auctions, I would get on stage and do what I had been taught to do, which was act like an art auctioneer and very sort of stiff and formal. And the crowd drowned me out nine times out of 10. And it was embarrassing and humiliating. And I still went up and did it time and time again, because every once in a while, there would be something that happened where I would be able to get the crowd's attention for a little bit. And there was something that was curious about that to me. And I wanted to dig into that and understand how to get the crowd to react, how to get them to come back. And what I learned over the course of my career as an auctioneer is it is about that command. So much about it is the way that you come out. And this can be spread across any public speaking. If you come out on stage and you are quiet, you don't have a lot of energy. That is what the room will give you nothing. And if you come out as an auctioneer, quiet with no energy, they won't even turn around. People have no issue talking over the auctioneer, especially in New York. So with me, I bring out a gavel. I slam it down three times as hard as I can. I call it the strike method. And from there, I launch into a spiel that sounds something like, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Lydia Finette. I am delighted to be here this evening. And then I throw in a joke. And it's usually about how fast the auction is going to be. They've given me 15 minutes. I'm going to get this done in nine. I know no one wants me on stage in the first place, but we're going to make it fun and furious. Let's get going. So the audience immediately knows that I am in on the joke. I know that nobody wants me up there, (laughs) but it's a necessary evil and we're going to make it fun. And so doing something like that has allowed the audience to sort of be like, okay, like she gets it. We'll, we'll, we'll go, we'll give her some time that that'll buy me maybe the first lot, maybe the second, but by the third lot, they're talking again. So you have to make sure that you go back to the audience and you get them to shush each other as the auctioneer. I never want to shush the crowd. I'll say to the table as I'm leaving. Okay, guys, when I ask table nine, because now you're my best friends, I've been seated at your table tonight. When I ask you, I need you guys to shush the crowd for me. 
So the crowd starts to bubble up around lot three. And I say to table nine, table nine, I need to just shush the crowd for mayor. My friends at table nine, could you do what we talked about before? And they'll do it for me. So you learn how to command an audience. And what you realize over time is if you make it about the audience and not about the lots and not about you as the auctioneer, they're definitely more excited to be there. If I'm picking out people and calling them out by a celebrity doppelganger, if I'm making a joke about somebody who's bidding and is trying to slap her husband or the wife's hand down while the other one bids, like you make it about what's taking place in the audience and less about on stage. And people love that. And that's what it takes to command an audience. <laughs> this is brilliant advice for anybody <laughs> standing in front of now. I know why everybody calls you all the time and says, come and talk to us. <laughs> Um, anybody standing in front of any size group, because I'm going to tell you that the, one of the number one things that you need to do, if you're going to get people's attention is notice where they are, like what's in their mind, what's going through their brain. What are they thinking about what you're about to say and address it head on. Right. Like you say, I know you don't want to be here. I know this wasn't the fun part of the evening. We've got 15 minutes. It's a necessary evil. Let's go. Let's make it happen. Um, and then you play with that in sort of seeing what it, where is the audience as this evolves Yes, and exactly. reacting to it. That's the core of getting, so it, you're putting your energy into the crowd rather than drawing all the crowd's energy to you. Exactly. That That's a great summary. And, you know, even to your point about playing with the time, what I'll often say is, remember, I've said, I've gotten out there, we're going to do it fast. I'll, you know, I'll do the first and second lots and say, Ladies and gentlemen, I've only been on stage for three minutes. I have no idea how long I've been on stage, but I've just told the crowd that it's moving quickly and therefore they're going to go along with whatever I say. So, you know, just making everybody understand that this is not, this is not a part of the evening that needs to take forever. And this goes to public speaking in general about what you see in front of you being something that the audience is probably seeing too. So if I always say on stage, the bigger the fail, the bigger the joke. You know, if I trip while I'm walking across stage, which happens all the time, I'm always in heels. There's always something on stage. I'm almost six feet tall. I'll be like, you know, $50,000 to the gentleman on my left. I almost tripped on the stage. Wouldn't that have been an entertaining part of this auction? But unfortunately, that's not happening tonight. $60,000 <laughs> on my right. You know, so whatever happens on stage, people get so nervous about phones ringing or, you know, if someone yawns in the front row, I'll say to them, even if I'm speaking, not even as an auction, like I was doing a speech last night and someone yawned and I said, Oh, uh, sir, I'm sorry. I'm clearly not being entertaining enough. Next time I will be sure to bring a dance number into my speech. And he kind of laughed because of course he'd yawn. And I said, I'm just kidding. I know everyone's tired. It's late in the evening. And the audience agrees. It is late in the evening. You know, I am trying to be entertaining, but it's late in the evening. We all see it and we all know it. Okay. I like that. Now that means I've got to be confident though. Mm. And I've got to not be afraid of being vulnerable. Yes. Confident vulnerability is the word I often use. I think that's the essence of authenticity, by the way. Mm. Because if I'm feeling a little nervous about, do I have the right to be here? Are they going to think I'm smart? Or they think I'm going to stupid? Or they think my jokes are funny or whatever? Then you're going to hold back yes. from saying the fun thing. So this leads us right straight into <laughs> your own your confidence story. So how do you do that? How do you boost your confidence? I truly believe that to be more confident, you have to put yourself out there all the time. You have to get used to, you have to get used to that feeling of, oh God, is this going to work out? And guess what? Sometimes it's not, but then you survive that moment and you get through it and you realize you're much stronger on the other side. 
I think the story you're talking about is probably the first chapter of Claim Your Confidence, where I talk about a book signing, where this is a spoiler alert, it's a longer story, but I walked in for one of my, what I thought was going to be a huge book signing and one person showed up and it was, it goes, it gets worse from there. Spoiler alert. That was just the beginning of that, but I had my first book signing for my second book two days ago. And you have to believe Wanda that I sat there just thinking, Oh God, please someone show up. But I sent a hundred emails to people to make sure that there were people there. I have learned my lesson. I've been through it. I survived. It doesn't feel great, but that's where confidence is born. I wrote a book. I put my entire life story into this book. I'm in full hair and makeup, and there's one person at my book signing. Explain to me something that's more mortifying than that. For very few things. People very don't things. understand that because you feel like this is the future of your brand and of your life and your income and your everything. And uh, right, I know uh-huh. that all too well. Anybody who's written a book knows that feeling. Um, yes. Okay. So the concept is do it. Do it and do it I again. I threw it. And then do it again. Yeah, because on the other side of fear is that release. You know, I've learned this in so many lessons over the course of my life where whenever I don't do something for a really long time and then I finally get it done and I realize that I was able to do it, the sense of achievement and accomplishment is what gives me that confidence. You know, I think about writing a book and you know this too. When you tell people that you're writing a book, a lot of people have that desire. They want to write a book but they don't know where to start and they don't want to take that first step. And it's a lot of work and it is a lot of work, but when you do it and you actually finish it and publish it, there's nothing that feels as great as that kind of achievement in life. And that can be said through any goal you set in your life. And I truly believe that you have to tell people about it. You have to get people invested in that journey. So they hold you accountable. I like to say, I paint myself into a corner. Whenever I have an idea, I tell as many people as possible. And then they all hold me accountable. And I'm like, oh God, I guess I have to do this. <laughs> but yeah. again, that's what makes it fun. And that's where I get confidence from is right. knowing that I can do it. I may just need some people to just make sure I do do it. <laughs> um, Neen James, who was one of my very early podcast guests, believe it or not, nine and a half years ago. I can't believe I've been doing this that long. Any rate, um, said, you know, there is nothing like announcing on social media that you're going to run a marathon mm. because everybody then is signed up for it, supporting you, asking you about it. And then you have to get yourself on with doing it because you told everybody you were going to do it. It's the same principle. Telling people, making it more public increases the pressure, the peer pressure, as well as the peer support. So it's I've a done great that too, Wanda. I've done, I've done that exact thing. That's why I did run my first marathon because I told everybody I would thinking I would never get a number. And then a friend of mine said, oh, if you'd like to run for a team, we have a team. And someone just dropped out. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm running my first now marathon. you're on. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Tell people about it. Well, it's not unlike your first internship with Christie's. You and your father are asking everybody you know, do you know anybody at Christie's? And eventually something does show up. Um, I want to come back to this thing, though, about the notion of when your confidence is low, that you go on and do it anyway, Mm -hmm. even if it doesn't work out, and then you do it again, because that's what boosts confidence. So title of this podcast, Out of Your Comfort Zone, I've been asking people for decades about how they learn to get out of their comfort zone. And inevitably, particularly in the business world, particularly with senior leaders, they always say, once you've done it once, meaning once you've moved from knowing everything there is to know about your area of responsibility to where you don't know everything there is to know about it, somebody else knows a lot more, a thing I call spanning. 
that is massively out of the comfort zone because you can't control it. You don't know the quality in the same ways. You can't manage the risk in the same ways. Once you've done it once, it becomes easier to do it the second and the third and the fourth time and you learn how. And that's what they always say is these big, massive jobs where you can't know everything that's going on underneath you. Not possible anymore. Yeah. Same idea. Same idea. Okay. Um, and I want to talk about a different one that you talk about in the book. You had this terrible car accident that changed the game. And as part of the reason, as I understand it, that you wrote this particular book, Claim Your Confidence. Tell us about that and how that impacted your confidence. Why is that important? Well, to tell you the truth, I had written 11 chapters of the book when the car accident happened. I was almost done with the book. And I had written the book because during COVID and even in the years prior when I was touring with my first book, one of the questions I was always hearing was about confidence. Mm -hmm. It was about imposter syndrome, but ultimately it was about confidence. Mm -hmm. And as a writer, I always think when you hear something over and over again, there's a white space. And as a writer, you can always write to a white space. And so I started writing the book. And as I said, I'd finished about 11 chapters of it. And it was Halloween of 2021. The book was due in December of 2021. And I was actually really excited because I was like, oh, I'm, I'm actually ahead. This is going to be great. I'm going to get it in before deadline. And we were coming back from Halloween outside of New York City. We live in Manhattan and we'd gone up to where my husband lives in Westchester to do sort of less chaotic Halloween trick-or-treating than in New York City with our three small children. And as we were coming back, a woman coming in the other direction lost control of her car, flipped the guardrail and came down right in front of our car on the left-hand lane. And we were going probably around 65, 70 at the time. And it was a complete knockout situation. My husband and I were both knocked out. I came to first. I could barely breathe. My children were screaming my name at the time. I think they were four, six, and eight. And I didn't even have enough breath to comfort them because I was in just so much pain physically. My husband was still slumped in his seat. So, you know, at the time, I didn't know if he was dead or alive. And through the next sort of couple of minutes, he came to he was able to make sure that our children were all alive because at that point I couldn't even turn around to see them or move enough to, to figure out what was going on. I could just hear them screaming. And he came over to the side to try to help me out of the car and I couldn't get up. And ultimately what I learned was I had fractured my spine, broken pretty much every rib that a seatbelt touches. I'd sliced my face open. So I was completely blind in my left eye because of the blood, but I didn't know. And it was an amazing moment because everyone was taken out of the car and I was kind of left in the car by myself. And I talk a lot about the power of positivity and the confidence that you will be okay no matter what that happens when you learn in small increments over the, the course of your life that you are a very strong person by putting yourself in situations where you have to be uncomfortable. And I remember sitting in that car alone, not knowing what was happening with my body, but thinking to myself, okay, you should go there. Like, what if you're paralyzed? You'll be okay you'll still be okay. You're still the same person. That's not going to change you. You're blind in your left eye. Like you're still the same person. This will not change you. And when we got to the hospital, my children were all in stretchers. My husband was in a stretcher. I was already there. I'd already gone through the ER and they wheeled our children in and we were laying on the stretchers next to each other. And my in-laws had come in and my sister was there and everybody was spiraling around me. And I remember thinking to myself, someone has to get control of this situation. And that person is me right now. And I said to everyone in the room, you know, that was scary. We are, we were in a horrible accident and that was the scariest thing that we've ever been through, but we are strong. We are a strong family. 
and we are going to be fine. We are alive and we are going to be fine. And you know, the funny thing was Wanda, at that point, I didn't even know that I would be fine. They were going to take me in for internal surgery shortly thereafter because they thought I was bleeding out internally. But I knew that even with everything going on around me, everything it would take if I would live and would be okay eventually, that I would still be fine and I would be strong enough to be strong for my family. Mm -hmm. And it was such an incredible moment because you talk about being out of your comfort zone. And, you know, when that car hit us and I woke up, I was like, this isn't my life. (laughs) This isn't, you know, I'm sure many of us have felt like that over the course of our lives during COVID. Like, this isn't my life. What's going on? How has this happened? But I believe when you claim your confidence and you believe in yourself, your friends and family become the scaffold, but ultimately you are strong enough to handle everything and anything that comes your way. And I believe that we all have that in us. And that's why the last chapter ended up being the perfect ending as morbid as that is to this book. I, you know, you don't want to always say content is like every day is content, but, but truly for me, I wrote that chapter five weeks after I was still pretty much bedridden. You know, I was, I had a spinal fusion in my lower spine. I can walk. Thankfully I can run to some extent. Like I am 98%, which is as good as I'll ever be. And it's great. But, um, but I think the most important thing that I learned through all of that was I never thought I'm not going to be okay. I always thought whatever happens around me happens around me. Whatever happens to my body happens to my body, but I am okay. And I can take care of the people around me with the love and support of the family and friends that I have as well. Where, so that's a horrendous thing to have happened. And I cannot imagine the emotions that come from that and the anxiety about your kids and their well-being and are they alive? Are they injured? I mean, a whole bunch, you know, if I lost my husband, I just cannot imagine. And then the pain that you are physically in as well. Um, I can imagine that the shock keeps you from focusing on what might be going on, what might be wrong with your body in some ways. But this believe in yourself. So lots of people have all sorts of things happen in their lives, but they lose that belief in themselves. How do you tell people to get back to the belief in yourself? You have to understand that every choice you make is your choice to make. People give that right away all the time. They ask other people what they should do with their life. They ask other people what they think about everything that they're doing. At the end of the day, and this I can tell you, having skirted death so closely, it all ends. So if you're not living the life you want, change it. And be confident in the fact that whatever changes you make are going to be the right ones because it's the ones you want to make. And that's where I think confidence comes from. I think it comes from living a life in truth and a life that you want to live that isn't defined by anybody else or anybody anybody else's standards. Great. I know some people who really need to hear that message as well. A lot of them uh, in particular that I'm thinking about at the moment. So live the life you want. And if it's not what you want, then you've got to make some choices to make it yours. It's a recognize that every choice is ultimately your choice. Not giving it away and asking everybody else and letting them tell you what you should or shouldn't do or can or can't to do in many ways and setting your own standards, your own values and living with that one. Okay. And right. I think you're going to also say recognizing that bad stuff happens. Yes. Life is not perfect. You know, a friend of mine said that, and I wrote that in the last chapter, one of my closest friends sat next to me in the hospital bed and said, why did this happen to you? You're such a good person. You have such a good family and a good heart. And 
my response was so fast and it honestly surprised me. I was like, why not me? Life isn't perfect. Nobody gets a free ride their entire life. Everybody loses something or someone or something doesn't work out. I've been blessed to this point. This is part of life. It's imperfect and messy, but it's about the human experience, the shared human experience, because the gift I've been given on the other side was to see my family and friends rise. And the gift that people give me daily by telling me their own experiences of trauma, because they've been through it too. Mm-hmm. And that's the gift of life as well. That's right. That's right. I love that. Okay. Why not me? We are not, that's not perfect. All of us, some of us have a higher share than others. I will confess. Some of us seem to be a little bit more blessed than others, but we all have stuff going on. In fact, I'm convinced if we don't, you don't actually do any maturing. I think that's what the whole notion of getting out of your comfort zone is about. Okay, Lydia, this is a perfect place to take a break for today. As you've heard, my guest today is Lydia Fennett. She is the author of Claim Your Confidence, packed full of wonderful, wonderful stories and insights and perspectives. And you might be tempted to say, yeah, yeah, Lydia, you've had such a rosy colored life. But I think that last story says, no, Lydia has an incredible amount of persistence, a lot of belief, and has taken a bunch of hits, but is still willing to pick it up and go again. I think the best statement is every choice at the end of the day is your choice. Don't give the choice this way. All right. We'll be right back after the break. And we come back. I want to talk about this lovely thing called the imposter syndrome and what we can do about it. We'll be right back. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Hi, I'm Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. We have some amazing guests with some incredibly good ideas about how to take your leadership to the next level. But I find people are looking for more practical ways of implementing those ideas. So we've created an individual subscription service specifically to focus on how to apply. You'll find more about that at www.outofthecomfortzone.com. We have two additional subscription services, one for the social group that want to exchange ideas and perspectives with a group and talk about career advancement. And we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on outofthecomfortzone.com. We hope you'll join us. Welcome back. With me today is Lydia Fennett. The book that we're talking about is Claim Your Confidence. Um, Lydia also has a lovely podcast called Claim Your Confidence Podcast. So highly recommend you check that out. And there's a prior book to this one called The Most Powerful Woman in the Room is You. And I actually see this as the first book is the lead in to the second book in many ways. We've been talking about how do you step out on the stage and own it? And part of that is the energy you put in the room is the energy you're going to get back to the room. And part of that is also understanding that you have to think about what is happening for your audience with your audience in your audience. And you're addressing that in the course of delivering your core messages or your core task, whatever it is. We've also been talking about confidence. 
And I said at the close of the last segment, every choice is your choice. Stuff goes wrong in life. No life is perfect. Sometimes there's a lot of stuff that goes wrong. You don't want to give away your power to make that choice. Um, and so if you're not getting where you want to go, then you got to do it again. You've also heard Lydia say that she has an incredible amount of positivity, and it's not because she just has everything working her way all the time, as we just heard for sure. So it's about believing in yourself. And that is what we mean in claiming the confidence. All right. So Lydia, with all of that, I want to talk about the imposter syndrome. Yeah, let's talk about imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, man, uh, coming and going. Every time I stand in front of an audience, particularly an audience of women, they want to talk about the imposter syndrome. When I ask men, do you have imposter syndrome? Have you ever had imposter syndrome? Every hand will go up. So in my experience, it's not a male or female thing. It's a human thing. But let's talk about you. How has the imposter syndrome occurred for you? It really occurred in my earlier career. You know, as I said at the very beginning of this, when I passed auctioneering class, I was sort of told, oh, Lydia will take the auctions that nobody else wants to take because the the intuition was there that I was a woman and people weren't necessarily going to feel like they maybe wanted a woman on stage. So that was fine with me. I was in my early 20s. I was just training. It never occurred to me that I would hear anything differently. But it really fed into this belief that I needed to be extra prepared. And in addition to that, that I should always be very thankful that anyone had chosen me to take their auction or had asked me to do it. Like I didn't deserve to be there, even though I was donating my time after a long work day to get on stage and take an auction on behalf of someone else. It really never occurred to me that this was something that somebody might be like, thankful that I was doing it. It was that I should be thankful that I had the opportunity to do this. And it got worse the more I did it because that kind of behavior in that situation made it seem like I was not the person who was in charge until I got on stage. So I was always sort of, oh, whatever you think, we can do whatever you want to do. You know, I always gave everybody else the choices. I gave them the ability to make the decisions, even though over time I was slowly becoming the expert because I was on stage every night of the week. Turns out there are a lot of auctions that nobody else wants to take. And so what started as sort of 40 auctions the first year was 50 by the next, and then 60 after that, and then 70 after that. And the other auctioneers kept giving them to me because they knew that I would take them anywhere because I was just trying to figure out how to be good at it. I was willing to get back up there, throw paint against the wall. If it didn't go well, fine, I'd get up the next night. And so for me, it was just sort of this evolution of what I was doing. But because I had this imposter syndrome, it wasn't allowing me to take ownership of this and be an auctioneer the way that all the guys I worked with were from the first day they got on stage. And there were little things like I would never in a million years touch alcohol before I got on stage. Whereas a lot of the people who I trained with would drink five or six drinks because they thought it was funny before they got on stage. It was like part of what they did because they wanted to be loose before they got on stage. And all I could think of was what would someone say if something went wrong when I was on stage and I'd had a glass of wine before they would have been like, Oh, that stupid drunk young woman. That's imposter syndrome. Would anyone have thought that? Probably not. I was in my 20s. You know, I'm allowed to drink. But for me, it felt like I needed to be almost more professional because I wasn't what people expected. And so it just continued to feed like that for a long time. And even the remarks that people would make when I got off stage, which I've learned are remarks people make every time you get off stage as a charity auctioneer, someone will say, oof, that was a tough crowd. And that would send me back to my house like, oh my gosh a tough crowd that must, that must mean they think I was terrible. I, I must've just not been able to control it. Like it is a tough crowd. And so now when people say that to me, I say, yeah, I'm a charity auctioneer. Every crowd is a tough crowd. And I walk right by them because 
it's true. Every crowd is a tough crowd when you're in a room of 900 people and everyone's talking, but that's what you're used to. So I think that that was really, for me, it was coming from both angles. I was hearing a lot about the fact that I wasn't, you know, the guy who people thought I was going to be. And then on the other side, I was acting like the person who was always like junior and couldn't figure out exactly what I needed to say to make everybody believe what I knew to be true after being on stage that long. And so in the book, I talk about this method I came up with, the SLAM, to get rid of imposter syndrome. And it's something that's evolved over the course of a 20-year career working in an office. But with imposter syndrome, we always go to the negative, right? We walk into a room, we're sitting at a table, and we're thinking to ourselves, how did I get here? What am I doing here? Well, I don't want to open my mouth because right. what if I say something wrong. Right. Yeah. I'm just going to think I'm not supposed to be here. And then they're going to talk about me after I, I mean, first of all, everyone sitting around a table is probably like wondering what time lunch is coming in. They're <laughs> not thinking about you. So <laughs> let's stop it right there, you know? Yeah. And so I say, I use the acronym, the SLAM because of my gavel, slam down that imposter syndrome. And the S is first and foremost, stop counting yourself out. Stop counting yourself out before someone's even had a chance to put you up for something or to give you the encouragement you need, or God forbid that you raise your hand. If somebody says to you, Wanda, you would be so great for this role. You would be so great for this speech. And a person with imposter syndrome will immediately start the following. Oh, I, you know, there are so many other people who are so much more qualified than I am. I mean, who am I? You know, you, we all hear it. My mom does it all the time. I see her. Wait, I don't, I, why would they ask me to do that? I'm like, why wouldn't anyone ask you to do anything? You're amazing. But she doesn't see it. She goes into that imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. So stop counting yourself out. The next time you find yourself trying to backpedal for an opportunity, think of a big red stop sign. Just stop it right there. Okay. Um, I say that the L is for listen. Listen to what someone is saying and don't create a narrative after that. This was a really big thing for me in maternity leave. When I came back, I had three maternity leaves in four years and I would come back from maternity leave. And I remember people would say things like, it's so nice to see you back in the office. And I would think, oh God, they think I'm not doing my job because I was on maternity leave. I'm going to have to come in on the weekends. I'm going to have to work harder. I'm going to have to show that. I mean, what did the person just say? It's so nice to see you. <laughs> in the office. And so I said with the listen part, if you are going to do a narrative afterwards, make it a positive one. How about so nice to see you back in the office. And I say to myself at the end of that sentence, you have three kids at home and you are still here doing this job. What a multitasker you are. We are so lucky to have you. What if we did that for ourselves? Mm -hmm. And that's a way to get rid of imposter syndrome. The A stands for, and I feel like everyone winces when I say this, so I want to say it carefully, accept that there are no gold stars in your adult life. Nobody gives you a gold star for living the life you want to live as an adult. There is nobody who gives you a star because you've done five loads of laundry on a day you didn't want to do it, just as no one puts a gold star at your desk for doing the job that you get paid to do. So don't look around for anyone else to give you a gold star. You know, if you've done what you need to do. So give yourself that gold star and don't look around for affirmation. That is a surefire way to make sure that imposter syndrome is fired up. And then the M is make a point and don't back down. I tell a story in the book about this pivotal moment 10 years into my career where I sat on a call listening to everybody talk about when a charity auction should take place during an event. 
right? After 10 years, I can tell you when I knew an event auction should not take place after an event. And that was after dessert. And I had been standing on that stage for 10 years doing it way too late in the evening. And there was finally one organization that I'd worked for the year before when there'd been a massive rain night in New York City, which easily halves a crowd, no problem. And the event had started, the evening got later and later, it was gushing with rain outside. People started leaving and I was sitting at one of the back tables watching people hemorrhage out of the room. Mm-hmm. And the knot in my stomach got worse and worse. By the time I got on stage, half of the room was empty. We raised not even close to their goal because anyone I could have leaned on to get money was gone. Yeah. And as we sat on the call a year later with a new event team who had never done an event there and event chairs who had done one gala, I'd been an auctioneer for 10 years. Let's say I'd probably take it at this point. I don't know. Let's ballpark at 600 auctions at this point. And I sat there and I immediately, when they opened it up with, well, let's talk about the run of show. The auction will obviously go after dessert. And I said, I think we should revisit the timing of the auction. And I was immediately shot down by the event planner. Well, we always do it that way. And that's the way we'll do it. And I said, I think we need to talk about the fact that it's too late and it needs to be pushed up, immediate pushback. And I finally said, I need to say that I understand that you're going to do whatever you want to do with your event, but I do not take auctions after dessert anymore. So if you would like for me to be the auctioneer, it will need to move earlier. Otherwise, I would be happy to find another auctioneer for you. And it was interesting because it took everything I had not to immediately apologize for being that forceful, (laughs) but I also knew that I was a hundred percent right. And that if I backed down, it was going to be the last time I said it because I would have that imposter syndrome for the rest of my time as an auctioneer. And there was a pause. And one of the event chairs said, well, Lydia is the expert. So we should probably just listen to her. Lydia is the expert. And I stood up at my office and like fist pumped my fist. That was the last time I took an auction after dessert, period, end of sentence. And guess what? The results speak for themselves. And so I would say that that is to me the most important part. If you know that you are right and you believe in the point of view that you have, stand your ground. Imposter syndrome is what makes you back down. You're an expert just like anyone else in life. So stand your ground. I find people often believe, know that they're an expert, but they worry that somebody knows more than them still. Mm. And I find the secret is not that somebody knows more, but do you know as much? I just think that equalizing thing is so much easier. It's just, it's easier to take. Yes. Does anybody know more about how to run an auction than I do? No, not here in this room. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. I love it. The equalizer. The equalizer. Absolutely slam. So stop counting yourself out, which is the voice in your head. Stop that. Stop sign. Um, listen to what people are saying. Don't add your own narrative to it. Accept that you're not going to get a gold star unless you give it to yourself. No gold stars, except if you get yourself. (laughs) And then when you make a point, make a point and don't back down. Okay. Great. I, that the last four coaching conversations I've had in the last two days, boy, do people need to listen to that one particularly because it's exactly what's happening. And, you know, like your story, when you say somebody says, I'm so glad to see you in the office may mean I missed you. I know. They mean, welcome back. Let's go back. Maybe. Where the heck have you been? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And like by this. the way, 
It's a yeah. nice thing that somebody misses you. Just FYI. <laughs> I had a case like this where the manager had said to someone, um, I was thinking about downgrading you for this thing that I heard, but I decided not to. And they emphasized that I was thinking about as opposed to the, I decided not to. Yeah, of course. I decided not to means it didn't have enough merit for us to worry about. Okay, <laughs> next. Two months later, still worrying about the first half, not the second Just half. bringing second. that sentence back up. And wow. it's amazing how easy it is for all of us to do that too. Yeah. You know, it, it change the sentence, change the part of the sentence that you listen, change the inflection of the way that someone said something. And right. it is, it's an incredible thing, but it does, it puts a lot of us in a place where we don't feel like we can move forward. And that's right. really the danger of imposter syndrome. Right. All right. And I want to play on one, one more to the A, accept no gold star. All of us like to be praised and valued, particularly by those who are above us in the hierarchy and responsible for our promotions and next opportunities and a whole host of other things. Okay. That's just the human condition. All right. And some of us have it worse than others also. Fair enough. That's also human. But the moment you give in your career, your value is based on whether somebody else judged you to be good enough mm -hmm. is the moment you're going to feel like an imposter and feel out of control. And you can do that by saying, I'm only good enough if I get this salary, or I'm only good enough if I get this title. And instead, I think the answer is to say, what am I trying to learn? What is it are my personal goals in that I control, not that somebody else controls? Um, and that's what I think you mean by the accept that you're not going to get a good gold star. All right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, I have to turn to your next one. I like toxic positivity. Now we've already established you're a very positive person without a doubt. Why do you use the language toxic pos positivity? I don't use the language toxic positivity. I hear a lot of people use it. I do not believe in toxic positivity. I ah. believe we all have the choice to be positive in our lives every single day. I have a great quote that one of my boss said, my bosses said to me many years ago when I was in my early twenties and, you know, I was at work and I love to talk about things that were going on at work. And it was amazing because I walked into her office and I probably had a litany of nine different things that I had to say about nine different people that I had encountered that day. It was like, well, then Susie did this and Amy did that and Lily did this. And, you know, and she kind of watched me. She's about 10 years older than me. And she said, you know, Lydia, I like to think to myself, if I get in one argument over the course of a day, it's 50, 50, but if I get in two, I should probably look in a mirror. And I was like, oh, it's me. <laughs> I'm the problem. And I think you can apply the same thing to negativity and positivity over the course of your life. When I hear people have days that are, have gone wrong, I listen to them list nine things that have absolutely no correlation to one another. Well, did you see what happened with the wildfires in California? And then there was a flood in Texas. And, you know, I was in a cab and, and I'm listening to these things and I'm like, the world is not conspiring against you to have a bad day. This is you choosing to look at all of these things as a bad day in, in some total. There are days that are bad. The day that we had the car wreck, that was a bad day. There's no question about that. I can, I can take that as a bad day. But I think for the most part, we always have the opportunity to look at a situation over the course of a day and be like, all right, I could choose to let this ruin my day, certainly. But also the other thing you should always remember about positivity is it affects everyone around you. 
You know, I tell a story in the book about this really bad day, no good, terrible day, as my kid's book would say, and everything keeps going wrong. And it ends with me sliding across a sleety subway platform. I'm late to a presentation. My bags spilled everything into this disgusting subway platform. And I stood up and I looked at myself in the doors that had just slammed in my face, which meant that I was going to miss this presentation and be late. And I was also, I was probably gonna have to amputate my hands because God only knew what I just put on my hands. And I remember thinking, you know, the funny thing is like this rage that I see in my face right now, if I had gotten on that subway car with all that rage from this day that had gone so terribly awry, I probably would have shoved someone to the side. Like I would have been angry with my team. I would have been upset with my children. It could have just gone on and on and on. And how many other people's day would be ruined because of me? And the answer is a lot. You know, I was running a team. Your boss comes in and she's not in a good mood or he's not in a good mood. Guess what happens? Trickle down effect. Guess what happens when you walk into Starbucks and start yelling that barista trickle down effect. That person is angry at the next person who comes in. Same with children, same with your partner. And I feel like that is what people forget about positivity. If you are in a negative place all the time, just remember this, this world is not about you and you alone. You are part of a much larger place. So if you can't do it for yourself, Think about the people that you encounter every day and think about how your positivity could affect them. So you've had a horrendous day, you know, plastered yourself on the subway platform and anybody who's been in New York and knows that that is not the place that you want to be plastered no. <laughs> late. You have a client who's upset with you. I mean, a whole host of other things and maybe somebody in your team screwed up. Maybe they didn't, but whatever. How do you get yourself into that positive place? Like, yes, you know, you don't want to be negative. You know, you don't want to pass that on to other people, but I still got to deal with my own emotions. So how do you do that? So I was on that subway platform for a while because I just missed the train and there was no one else at that point because everyone else had just been able to get on the train. And I sat there and I thought about that saying about one thing happens, 50-50, two things happen, look in a mirror. And I was like, what if I apply that to right now. And I go back through this list of things that went wrong. And instead of looking at them as a bunch of negative things, I try to find the one positive part of it. So the first thing that had happened, it had been snowing. And we were so excited about the snow. When I took my two oldest children to school, we made it all the way to the subway without their backpacks. So we ran home. And what was the positive? My, my third child was so young at that point. It was still so exuberant whenever the door opened. It's not the way they are as they get older, but it's certainly at that point. And I threw the door open and she was like, oh, you know, and it was a kiss and a hug and unexpected moment of joy for her. And for me as a mother, hold on to that. That's the positive in that moment. And I literally went moment by moment, everything that had gone wrong, there was always something that had gone wrong. And that's what I did on that subway platform. And that is when I got onto the next subway train, still dirty, I was in a much better place. I put on some great top 40 pop music, which always makes me happy, <laughs> lasted in my ears. And I remember thinking, I'm going to go to work and tell this story. And I'm going to make people cry with laughter. <laughs> and I did. I mean, everyone was like, texting me like, where are you? And I was like, unbelievable subway issue. You guys aren't going to believe this story. When I got there, I immediately was like, so I slid across a platform on my hands and knees 
it would snow. I mean, people were like, it's fine. Don't worry. It's fine. This is not the end of the world. You know, at the end, I told them the story in granular detail. We did cry with laughter. People still love that story. And so my point (laughs) is that it can always be reframed and it can always be thought of in a different way. You can't do it every single day of your life. And I'm not Mary Sunshine 24 seven, but I will say I do in moments when things are really, really bad, think to myself, you have the opportunity to make this worse or make it better. better. Make so it better. look for the micro moments yes. that yeah. were positive, the yes. unexpected bit of joy, but you have to look for them. Yeah. And as you said, yeah. go for every single one of them, what was positive and also turn it into a fun story doesn't hurt because if you can laugh, that's going to help. All right, Lydia, we've got like two minutes. Does anything take you out of your comfort zone? All the and time. So what is that? I like being out of my comfort zone, pushed me further out. <laughs> and truly after the car accident, I had a spinal fusion, as I said, and it's been an incredible confidence journey for me to start doing the things that I wasn't sure I was ever going to be able to do again. So my husband and I both love skiing. It's something we've done our whole marriage. And I had a work trip in Colorado and it started dumping snow unexpectedly the day I got there. And I called him and I said, I think I'm going to stay and just try to ski again. And he was like, Okay, let's see. So I went up, put on those skis, and the first one down the whole way, I was like, oh God, is this going to hurt? I can't tell. Is this going to work? I can't tell. Got down, did it again. Same thing. Third time, had totally forgotten about my spinal fusion, and I skied the rest of the day, no problem. And I came off of that ski slope, and I'm not even kidding. I said to myself, all right, what's next? So for Christmas, my husband, who has a titanium wrist because of the accident with my titanium spine, my three children, we all went surfing in California together. <laughs> Can I do it very well? No. Was my husband amazing? He was not, but we did it. And he turned to me afterwards and he said, God, you know, I never would have thought I was able to do that. He's like, I want to try something new. It's amazing because it's contagious. Once you realize outside of your comfort zone is where you really start to live. Okay. There you have it out of the comfort zone. Lydia, what a great conversation. How much fun. Lydia Fennett is the author of Claim Your Confidence. Check out our podcast, Claim Your Confidence podcast as well. Lydia, what a treat to hear your stories and to hear your advice. I think there's something there for absolutely everybody. So Wanda, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Delightful, delightful. All right. And to our audience, if you enjoyed this episode, please like us on your favorite podcast server and definitely join us next week for another episode of Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace.